Welcome to Time After Time, a non-sponsored, highly judgmental podcast about time travel and love and friendship and the movies that bring them together into our living rooms. I'm Helena and I'm Paige. And maybe in an alternate timeline, you've already listened to this podcast and you loved it. Let's go. Welcome to Time After Time. This is a very exciting night for us. A very special episode, as they say. We have uh, a guest with us. Um, The very special guest is none other than Paul Paul Fari. (laughs) Yes, that's right, folks. Paul Fari is here, and uh, I will let him introduce himself. Paul, why are you a friend of the pod? I'm more than just a friend of the pod. I am the father of one of the podsters, if that is the proper word for a person who podcasts. Um, Paige, my daughter. No, (laughs) Helena is my daughter. Uh, I was about to do a bit where I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) No, my own personal child, Helena, is one of your hosts and um, a brilliant uh, host she is. Thank you so much. What do you what do you do in um, when you're not moonlighting as a, a podcast guest? Well, I'd like to turn pro as a podcast guest, as it turns out. Uh, but right, let's see how tonight goes. <laughs> and as it also happens, there's not a lot of money in it. Um, however, I am available. But most of the time, uh, as you know, as you've known all your life, in fact, I, I am a reporter for the Washington Post, and I write for the Washington Post. That's what I've done for thirty. Two coming on 33 years. Wow. The media, folks. The media is here. And also, you know, you've appeared on many a a TV show. So in a way, being recorded is old hat. Yeah, I I, uh, often ask um, where my uh, TV appearances are at. And my agent has not come through for me uh, recently. (laughs) Although recently, I have to tell you, I was on the BBC talking. You didn't tell me that. Yeah, I was talking about some American thing that they wanted interpreted. So as it turns out now, I kind of speak for America and represent Mm. America to the world. Was it Meghan Markle? Is that what they wanted to talk to you about? I think it was the election. And like, why did you have a riot at your capital? And what the hell is wrong with you people? It's a very good question. Yeah, did you have an answer for that? No, I didn't. (laughs) 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 I'm like everybody else. All right. Well, I, I could, you know, we could talk to you about your, you know, ca- uh, career for hours, but that's not what the that's not what the the listeners are here for. No, they come for the time jumps and loops and uh, the romance, skigamadoos, all of that. Um. So the the movie that all three of us have watched this week is Peggy, Peggy Sue got married. Um, and Paul, uh, am I correct in that I that I heard that this was not your first time viewing this film? Well, here's a little story about Peggy Sue Got Married and me, because I'm sure everybody would love to know. Um, this movie came out in late 1986, and I saw it when it was in the movie theaters, either in late 1986 or early 1987. I can't really remember, uh, but it was around that time it came out, because I remember the exact theater I saw it in. And I saw it with Helena's mother, who happens to be my personal wife. Uh, We had a date night then. 
there was no Helena in those days. There was an older brother who was born and who was about two years old. And um, we went out on a date night. We had a babysitter. And we went to the Coronet Theater, which is on Geary Boulevard near Arguello. And I looked this up the other day because I was curious about it. Uh, we haven't lived in San Francisco in quite a while, but we go back from time to time. And I could have sworn I saw it the last time I was there. In fact, I didn't see it the last time I was there because it got torn down in about 19, excuse me, in about 2005, replaced by a, a senior citizen's home. And um, anyway, this all is by way of saying I have a long history with this movie, if only that memory uh, alone. Paved paradise and put up a parking lot, didn't well, they? <laughs> not exactly uh, a parking lot. Uh, um, that theater was a great theater. It was one of those really big ones, single auditorium, and you know, really great sound and everything like that. And I don't know, they don't really make those anymore. And it was, I have a lot of nostalgia for it. Oh man, remember movie theaters? Just like yeah. movie theaters. What? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Do you remember you and um, Helena's mother and your personal wife? Do you remember uh, if the two of you enjoyed the film together? You know, that's a really great question. I, I think we did. I can't even remember if I did. It was 30 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. um, this movie came out after Back to the Future. And in fact, mm -hmm. I loved Back to the Future as everybody does. And so I was kind of excited because I love time travel. And I'm glad you do this podcast because I love time wow, travel. Wow, it runs in the family. I, sure. I have dreams, as I've told Helena. I have dreams where I, where I time travel. They're not really romantic dreams. They're just historical dreams. So I'm a big fan of time travel. And seeing it in movies is a cool thing. And uh, I loved Back to the Future. And I had really high expectations uh, for this one as well. Well, we will get into whether or not those expectations, those expectations are, met. are met. And also, yeah. side note, maybe you can help me convince Helena that we can do Back to the Future Part 3 on this podcast because there is a big love story with Doc and uh, the lady from the Old West. I don't know. I'm not convinced. <laughs> I, I must confess, I've never seen three. Wow. Uh, well, maybe if we do it, you'll have to come back for that one. Yeah. Please um, invite me. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Should we get into the plot summary? Yes, let's. We meet Peggy Sue, played by Kathleen Turner, in 1985 on the night of her high school reunion. She's recently separated from her high school sweetheart, Charlie, played by a 26-year-old Nicolas Cage, and everyone won't shut up about it. She and Charlie got married right out of high school due to an unplanned pregnancy from sex they had on her 18th birthday, and they recently split up because he was cheating on her. Charlie unexpectedly shows up right as they are crowning the reunion's king and queen, which is apparently a thing at this school. Richard Norvik, who used to be the school geek but is now very rich and successful, wins king, and Peggy Sue wins queen. While accepting the award, she faints on stage. When she comes to, she is laying on a gurney, still in her party dress and still in her high school's gymnasium, but now it is 1960 and she has passed out from giving blood during her school's blood drive. Her friends attribute her what's going on-ness to being out of it from giving blood and they take her home. By the next morning, she has accepted that she is now back in 1960 and is excited to hang out. 
She befriends Richard Norvik and explains what is going on, hoping that he can help her make sense of it, or at least take her knowledge from the future and make some money with it. She later goes to a party with Charlie, and after having a great time together, she tries to have sex with him, but he rebuffs her, citing that she said just last week that she wasn't ready. He drops her off. Instead of going home, she wanders to a nearby diner where she sees wannabe beatnik Michael Fitzsimmons, who she had revealed to her friends at the reunion that she had always had a crush on in high school. They hang out, discuss Hemingway and poetry, and ride off together to have sex under the stars. Charlie finds out and ends things with her. Some nights later, she goes with Michael to a segregated music bar, and he tells her that he wants her to come to Utah with him and be polyamorous with him and another woman and raise chickens while he writes. She wisely declines this offer and realizes there is no future with this man. But she tells him that he can use their night together as inspiration for his writing. All of a sudden, she hears Charlie singing and turns around to see that he's singing with an R&B group on stage at this music bar. The moment makes her realize that there is more to him than she knew. She leaves with Michael and we see Charlie come off the stage and get rejected by a music agent. The next day, Peggy Sue tries to reconcile with Charlie, but he is still upset about not getting a music deal and pushes her away. She decides to leave town since she thinks she ruined both her and Charlie's life when she got pregnant. She goes to tell Richard and he proposes to her, but she rejects him saying, quote unquote, Peggy Sue got married, case closed, I don't want to marry anyone. The next day, Peggy Sue's 18th birthday, she goes to see her grandparents. She ends up telling them what is going on, and her grandfather thinks that he and his Masonic Lodge friends can help. They go to the Lodge, and the Freemasons perform a very intense ritual to try to send her back to 1985. All of a sudden, the lights go out, and when they come back on, Peggy Sue is gone. The Freemasons think that they have done it, and they decide to go play cards. However, Peggy Sue did not go back to 1985. Instead, when the lights went out, she got kidnapped and taken outside by Charlie. Charlie tells her he is giving up on singing and going into the family appliance business. He also proposes giving her a locket with baby pictures of each of them inside. The pictures resemble the baby pictures of their children, which were in the locket she was wearing in the future. So she says yes, and they have sex, presumably creating their daughter. After this, Peggy Sue awakens in the hospital back in 1985 with Charlie sitting at her side. He apologizes for being an idiot, and they seem to reconcile. Also, a lot of people from the reunion sent gifts, including Michael Fitzsimmons, who has dedicated a book to her. They live happily ever after, question mark, maybe? The end. I thought that was a really good summary. Thank you. Which well brings us to uh, our uh, one of our favorite segments, uh, which is called Blast from the Past. Now, as um, as Helena, as your father alluded to earlier, you were not around in 1986, and neither was I. That is true. Um, so you know we're we're time traveling back to 1986, and and we hope maybe this brings back some some good memories for for Paul. <laughs> yes. Um, we our first question as the movie began, and we heard the the song come up over the opening credits. We're like, oh, was the movie written, or was the song written for the movie, or was the movie after the song and it turns out the the latter um the song peggy sue got married came first it was written by buddy holly in 1959 um so even when peggy sue was back in the past in 1960 the song would have already came out so when she says peggy sue got married to the nerd guy it maybe is a reference to the song that uh, highly likely 
um, because Buddy Holly and the Crickets were a huge group, and uh, he ended up dying and becoming a bigger star even after his death. And the reference to the song and the use of the song is really interesting because the soundtrack in this movie is fantastic. Um, many, many great hits of the late 50s used in a way that if you saw the movie American Graffiti, which is not a time travel movie, also... So we've used, never seen it. <laughs> well, it's a movie from the 70s, a huge hit at the time, and it was rode this sort of wave of nostalgia in, in the 70s for the 1950s and gave rise eventually to Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and a whole bunch of TV shows uh, celebrating the 50s all over Also, again. Greece. I'm imagining, and is yes, in that category. Yeah, more to the point, Greece came out of this era. And uh, so anyway, this movie is at the tail end of that nostalgia wave. And uh, mm. the soundtrack really kind of harkens back to American Graffiti, which was set, a George Lucas movie s set in the 1950s, with Ronnie Howard eventually to be of Happy Days. So... I, that's all I, I don't have anything to add there. Yeah, that's very <laughs> impressive. I had to do a lot of Googling, and you just knew a lot of things. Um, so I'll ask you then. Helena uh, will tell you that I think I know a lot of things. They're, I mean, you do know a lot of things, to be fair. Yeah. It's just like the selection of things is pretty interesting. That's right. It's, it's, a ran, it's like the attic. You know, there's a bunch of random stuff up there. <laughs> it doesn't all match, and you give away a lot of it. Well, let's see if you know then. So uh, Nicolas Cage throughout this movie is talk, talks to a picture of a, a man that I believe he refers to at some point as Fabian. Yes. Do you know? Do you know? Oh, do you yes. know anything about well, Fabian? Fabian was a. Th this was an odd moment for me because Fabian was kind of a teeny bopper favorite. Um, it would not be the kind of thing that a guy of eighteen, guys being macho, would really. Um, you know, look at. I, th I had to watch that scene twice because it said, Fabian? Why not Elvis? Why not? Yeah, you know, we, you know, yeah we were somebody cooler. We, yeah, we thought, of, we thought of Elvis right away. Yeah, and, and, and I and, just, and I, like his, also, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you have insight into this, Dad, but like, I felt like the music that he was singing at in his like scene where he was singing, he was like on stage uh, at the party was like not very cool. There are, are a number of songs in there that are sort of doo-wop-ish as, as well, like Shimmy Shimmy, Coco Bop, and Teenager in Love. They all sort of use that style. So that was very of the, the late 50s. Um, it, it's not unusual, I guess, um, that, you know, I mean, they could have turned him into a Buddy Holly-esque rocker or an Elvis-esque rocker, um, but it, I didn't think that was too out of character or wrong for them to uh, do it as doo-wop. Because, by the way, they had to get the other guys into that scene, too. The Jim Carrey. Mm. The Jim Carrey. Yeah, they paid for Jim Carrey, so. Well, he wasn't a star then. He hadn't <laughs> That's true, food. that's true. That was one of his earliest yeah. um, uh, movies, I guess. What I, is, and, and I have to say, what a scene stealer. Every Honestly, time he was, on, he was on screen, we were just looking at Jim Carrey. Completely delightful. Yes, yes, he was. Although, you know what? Everyone in this movie, including Kathleen Turner, is completely of the wrong age. Oh so, my God, yes. And yes. you know, they have this scene where the, it's their 25th uh, reunion. So people would be what, 42? 43. Yeah, 43. Nah, they're, they're, Kathleen Turner was 33. 
in this movie, yeah. Yeah. in real life. Mm-hmm. Helen Hunt, who plays her daughter, was only nine years younger than her and was actually a year older than Nicolas Cage. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's one of those freak-out ones. Um, here's, I, I love playing that game because here's my favorite one. In The Graduate, uh, oh, Dustin Hoffman, who plays the, the, the lead character, is, I think, eight years younger at the time playing against the older woman who seduces him and Bancroft. So he's like 28 when he made this movie. She's like 35. Oh my God. And she's like, she's supposed to be like the crypt keeper, like seducing this young man. It's horrifying. Well, apparently, you know, we usually, you know, you see it like that, right? Where the woman is, has to play older or the man, you know, doesn't, or men are never with age appropriate right. women on screen. Apparently, uh, I don't know. This might be revisionist history. Like they might have done this afterwards, but allegedly, par- they thought part of the fun of pairing a twenty-six-year-old Nicolas Cage with a thirty-two, thirty-three-year-old Kathleen Turner was that it sort of reversed that gender, that that typical gender role. Really? Did, yeah. Did you? Th- he did seem younger than her throughout the movie. Didn't well, he, he was. <laughs> in, in fact, he was. That's right. He was, um, yes. He was like eight years... Well, he was like, yeah, seven years younger, and he also was making wild choices, which we will we will get to. Yeah, uh, his choices were There is crazy. a lot, and there's been a lot he's talked about his choices, so... And Kathleen Turner has talked about those choices, yes. too. Yes, and been sued over them. Oh, well, can we get to that? Yeah. <laughs> Tell I me all was, about it. I was trying Go to keep... Page. Um, yes. So real quick, I'm just going to run through the less fun things because we're going to, we're going to get distracted. Just fun fact. The movie was written by a husband and wife writing team. That's cool. The movie was scored by John Barry, who we loved, who scored somewhere in time. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. He's like on a roll. Yeah. And, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who directed the movie, replaced Penny Marshall, a woman who conflicting accounts, uh, some said that she had created differences with the writers, and some people said the producers thought the movie had gotten too big for a first-time director, so they fired her. Unclear. Penny Marshall was actually replacing Jonathan Demme, who ended up directing Silence of the Lambs, who also left due to creative differences. So a lot of hubbub led to the, the Godfather guy directing this. Deborah Winger was set to star as uh, Peggy Sue, but she left when Penny Marshall did out of loyalty to Penny Marshall. Oh. And... Um, Two of Francis Ford Coppola's relatives are in the film. His daughter plays Nancy, uh, who's Peggy Sue's younger sister. And we found out while watching this movie, Nicolas Cage is Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. I had no idea. That's right. Did you know that, Paul? I did know that. And I knew that at the time. And there was some reporting around that at the time that this was nepotism and it's weird. I mean, yeah. You look at Francis Ford Coppola, and he's not just the Godfather guy, although he is the Godfather guy. That was, you know, one of the great pictures of all time. He was the Apocalypse Now guy, which right. was a mm-hmm. huge, very cool, uh, and story Ma- mired in film. controversy. And so this was several steps down from the epics that he had right. directed. This is really kind of remembered, if it's remembered at all, as kind of a minor film. But considering that it's kind of a light comedy and fantasy, it really is actually displays quite a lot of range for a guy like Francis Ford Coppola, who did these heavy, big, you know, legendary movies. So uh, props to him, really. 
I, I guess, although I think that it might account for, like, some of the, like, tonally weird stuff yeah. that happens, where, like, it it is, it, you're right that it does display range, and it does have a little bit, maybe... Gravitas that it wouldn't otherwise. Right, exactly, but I think that there are some, like, things where I'm like, what is yeah. that? And there were, the reviews were mixed about his directing as well, where some people saying, like, it was too leaden or, like, too heavy for what it was trying to be. I thought it moved along really well. It's it's a kind of classic Hollywood, you know, slick production. Um, there's not a lot of nuance here, and you know he keeps it going. And there's some themes uh, in in behind it, but but I, I thought it was pretty slick for for a guy who you know had this big reputation and could have been very ponderous about it. Yeah, I mean, to also be fair to the production. Because he was probably, maybe maybe because he was the third director, um, he was contractually obligated to finish the film on time or lose his final cut privileges. So because of this, the cast and the crew worked 20 hours a day, six days a week oh until God. they finished this movie. <laughs> what is this, an indie flick with no yeah. budget? Oh my God. I, I, All right. We, it didn't show though. Did you? Did it feel? Rushed? No. It. I mean, it didn't show. But also, I imagine it was probably a miserable place to be. Sounds like an awful time. Right. Which again brings us back to Nicolas Cage, uh, which we can talk about now. First of all, he did not want the role. Francis Ford Coppola had to ask him many times, and he mm. finally agreed only if he could play the character in a quote-unquote over-the-top manner. Well, he definitely well, did that. that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> he said he saw the movie more as a fantasy than a sci-fi, and her journey back to the past is more of a hallucination. So he thought that his character should be really cartoonish, and he based it specifically on Pokey from The Gumby Show. Oh, my God. That is weird. Nicolas Cage? I, that. I I got to tell you, I, I, I am not a Nicolas Cage fan because he is always over the top. He's sort of Al Pacino-like in his mm-hmm. histrionics and his over-exaggeration, and I actually enjoyed him in this, even though everybody seems to have hated him in this. And the reason I enjoyed him in this is because he was playing an 18-year-old dope, and he kind of seemed like an 18-year-old dope to me. He definitely had the, like, age thing down, but just the choices felt enormous. Like, they didn't feel like film choices to me. They felt like theater choices, and also not even, like, good theater choices. Like, Community theater choices. Right. <laughs> like he, the the choice, he, it was his choice to speak really nasally and wear false teeth. Um, and the, oh, the, the false, false teeth, teeth to me is where it's like community theater vibes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, did, not those, did not know that. The other community oh. theater vibes for me was like the fact that the ages turned it into mm-hmm. that a little bit for me because like she did, she didn't look eighteen. She, she also looked, didn't look forty three. Like she looked right. neither of those ages. I feel like they thought they're like if we cast someone who's in you know who's in her thirties, she'll be able to pull off both, and she pulled off neither. I was astonished to read that she was nominated for an Academy Award for this role. What? Yeah. She yes. was? Yeah. She was nominated. Why? She was nominated for three I... Academy Awards, Best Actress, um, be- I have it somewhere, maybe Cinematography, and uh, Costuming was the third one. The Costuming, maybe, although I did have some, some gripes. But, but uh, the but reviewers was, loved her. They said she... They, was, she... she was uh, you're right. She was sort of stuck in time, if we may... Uh, use the theme here uh, between being not old enough and being too old um, in that sense but this I mean just factually was the start of a huge Kathleen Turner career arc going up she goes on to make 
uh, Body Heat with William Hurt, and she goes on uh, to make the Romancing the Stone movies with Michael Douglas. She's a huge star by the early 90s. She also uh, was directed by Sofia Coppola in The Virgin Suicides. Ah, oh, that is a good fact. Good connection. But yeah, this was her only Academy Award nomination of her career. The thing is, it's casting that's the problem, right? Like, she does a good job with totally. what she's given. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah, I think they may have been better off just casting like someone else, like two early 20s people, and then just make them, like, put on makeup and hair and stuff that makes them look older for the beginning and end scenes. Or cast two different Who do you people. See there? Who do you, you know, I mean, I could see a few people. How about Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I don't think I have a, a wide berth of knowledge of, of ingenue actresses of that time. <laughs> Me neither. But yeah. they also could have just, ca- I mean, what they do in a lot of time travel movies, right? Like Back to the Future, like they could have cast different people to play the 18-year-old versions of them and the 43-year-old versions of them. That's a big span. It is, yeah. And it, it mm. felt a little hokey to me that they didn't do that. Yeah. It was campy and like Nicolas Cage was campy and then the end with the Freemasons was campy. I love that. By <laughs> way. We'll get to that. Do but you? yeah. But so much of the movie wasn't campy. Um, like her performances wasn't. The rest of the performances weren't. I mean the directing. The themes were not like necessarily campy. Yeah. That's why the can, camp was can confusing. I, can I just talk to you about themes for a minute? Um, mm-hmm. Sure, I, sure. I, I know this was supposed to be romantic, and of course that's what you guys talk about. Uh, and I thought the romance in some ways was the least interesting relationship that could have been explored in this movie. And I, here's why I say this. Uh, the scene with the grandparents struck me um, because think about this. If you could go back in time and see you would go to see people you could never see again. She knew about her relationship with Nicolas Cage. Their marriage was on the rocks or it was going badly. She knew all about how it began, how it went, and how it was ending. She was never going to see her grandparents again. And so I kept thinking, boy, you know what? If I were given the opportunity to do that, I'd go back and, and see people that, that are gone. And, and how beautiful that would be. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it seems like she took it as the opportunity to just, like, relive. Like, she she was at a place where she was like, I've made a lot of mistakes that led me to a certain point, so I'm going to just redo it. Use what I know as a mature woman and work it, you know, when I was a naive kid, which is also kind of a fantasy, you know, that... If I right, knew yeah. now what I knew then or whatever, or if I knew then what I know now, I'd be so much more sophisticated. And that was her thing with um, the Michael Fitzsimmons guy, mm-hmm. you know, this is the kid who was a fantasy of hers when she was 18 years old. Now she can live her fantasy by going back as a alleged 42-year-old woman and, <laughs> and sleeping with him. And by the way, he was a drip. Come on. Oh, he was the worst. Yeah. So yeah, so Nicolas Cage made a lot of choices that uh, Kathleen Turner did not like. <laughs> oh, um, really? She didn't like like having yeah. to watch him chew scenery opposite her? Also, the studio <laughs> didn't like it. The studio tried to fire him, and Francis Ford Coppola was like, no. If I he walks, walk. I yeah. walk. Oh, my God. Um, so, well, yes. Yeah, so, that's his nephew. So. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Stick up for the family. It is, it is crazy. That, Who would you have cast in that role if not Nicolas Cage? And obviously this opens it up to lots and lots of actors. 
I mean, again, my birth, my like, my knowledge of, of the actors of that time is, is limited, but it's, uh, what about the guy from Somewhere in Time? Christopher Reeve? Yes. <laughs> a little old at that point, but mm. yeah. Fair. True. An 18-year-old Christopher Reeve? Ooh. How about Matt Dillon, who um, replaced Nicolas Cage in The Outsiders? Yeah, just, he would have been good. Just a thought. Okay, but Nicolas Cage is as a, an actor. Yeah, I think there's some bad behavior I need to know about. So maybe it. I'm not. I'm gonna read you what Kathleen Turner said, but then there's a big asterisk to this. Okay. So Kathleen Turner, in her 2008 memoir, wrote that he, as a Nicolas Cage, caused so many problems. He was arrested twice for drunk driving, and I think once for stealing a dog. Oh my God. He'd come across a Chihuahua he liked and stuck it in his jacket. On the last night of filming, he came into my trailer after he clearly been drinking heavily he fell on his knees and asked if I could ever forgive him I said not right now I have a scene to shoot excuse me and just walked out Nicholas didn't manage to kill the film but he didn't add a lot to it either for years whenever I saw him he'd apologize for his behavior I'd say look I'm way over it but I haven't pursued the idea of working with him again and then she goes on to say that she didn't like any of his decisions and she talked to Francis Ford Coppola about it because she didn't think it was professional to talk to him to talk to Nicolas Cage about it and Francis Ford Coppola was basically like I don't know he's fine in 2018 in response to Turner's claims that he had driven drunk and stolen a chihuahua Nicolas Cage sued her for defamation and won and so he received a public apology from Turner admission from her publisher that the claims were false and defamatory and a pledge that Turner and the publisher would make a substantial donation to charity huh so I I don't know yeah I I the fact that he like apologize to her every time he saw her after that although I guess she's the one who said that I don't know my impression uh as someone who's not there um is that he maybe was poorly behaved and a drunk on set but wasn't actually arrested for drunk driving or stealing a dog sure because those things could have been traced like we could have figured that out well, as a, as a lifelong reporter, it is not my po- my go. place to speculate on this. Uh, Fair so enough. I, I shan't, as we say. <laughs> well, you, either way, it sounds like there was a lot of drama on set. Yeah, and you know what? All of this, all of this, is on Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. Get your people in line. If and don't make them think, work twenty-hour days. Well, that's part of it too. But if if your leading actor is doing some crazy ass thing, tell him not to do that. You're wrecking mm-hmm. the picture, and you know throw him off the picture if, if need be. Um, so Francis Ford Coppola must have approved of the crazy choices that Nicolas Cage made in this because it goes on throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, or he just saw this as a payday and didn't care that much. That's that also could possible. Be, that could be too, and and I think what. This is just a suggestion, is not factual, um, but just an idea that after having made The Godfather and made such a gigantic splash as the director of The Godfather, and then having made an even giganticer, if that's a word, splash as the director of Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola got burned out and, you know, took on smaller and less commercial kinds of movies, although this was a pretty commercial movie, but, you know, basically worked his way downward or worked his way out of being the blockbuster guy that he was. Yeah. I also wonder if wonder if this movie was also about like trying to give his daughter an in. I mean as an actor. Maybe. But she didn't want to be an actor. 
she did until Godfather 3 when the reviewers were like, she can't act. <laughs> and then she was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll be a writer or director. I mean, that worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, Kathleen Turner apparently said she feels her roles very deeply. And so during the movie, she had nightmares that her dead grandmother called her on the phone. Like what happens to her character? Wow, that's cool. that was cool. I was very touched yeah. by that one scene where they get the phone call and she realizes it's her. The character realizes it's her grandmother. And yeah, I had a feeling like that myself watching that. Yeah, yeah. that was that was a nice scene. Also, so Helene and I both, while we were watching, commented on we wanted more from the her and nerd boy inventing things storyline for sure and apparently that was a bigger part of the script um in the original script they invent she invents pantyhose and persuades people to invest in xerox however uh this trivia person pointed out that that would have been an anachronism anyway because pantyhose were actually invented in 1959 okay um i mean they probably were in patented in 1959 they still weren't popular right sure sure yeah okay fair enough also sounds Days before pantyhose seem like better times. <laughs> no, they had much worse things before pantyhose. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> pantyhose are the best we've got. <laughs> but also, the scene uh, at the reunion in the beginning where her friend rolls up in a wheelchair never went, and we never saw that friend again. But in the original script, she also say that friend Rosalie is apparently uh, has an accident. Oh, that the, she stops. That she stops. Okay. I mean, mm. all right. <laughs> it's just interesting because without that, you know, the actress who played Rosalie wasn't in a wheelchair. So right, without yeah. it, it just seems, seems like, like a strange choice. choice. But I think that it's um, it's interesting because what we ended up getting left with when all that stuff gets cut is like a much less quirky little film and a much more like she's... A, a more internal journey rather than mm-hmm. it being like about all the time travel uh, fun she can have. Right. Yes. Which I'm always one for time travel fun. Yeah. And I think that also would have led it to more camp. Yeah. What, what kind of time travel fun do you think she should have had? Like inventing pantyhose, uh, telling people to invest in Xerox, uh, um, you know, just the general the general things you're not supposed to do if you go back in time. Right, change right. things. Make right. money off of it. Right, yeah. Um, Prove and, to people you've time-traveled by, like, predicting some big event, something right. like that. Right, I see. Yeah, that, that's what, when in, when I have dreams about time travel, I always mess with the, the world then. I, I, the, uh, here's a repeated dream I have. I go back to right before some major historical event, and I tell everybody this major historical event is about to happen. So for instance, I'll go back right before 9-11, or I'll go right back back before Pearl Harbor, and I run around telling everybody, get ready, this bad thing is going to happen. And, and none dream, of them listen to you? Nobody listens to me, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that happens a lot with actual historical events, right? Weren't a lot of people telling Bush that 9-11 was going to happen? That's a good point. <laughs> maybe they were time travelers. They, maybe they were time <gasps> travelers. Oh, my God. Wow, we could write that movie. We have. It, it is true that every time there's a, a time travel movie that takes place near 9-11, we're like, yeah. someone say something about 9-11. Right. Like but we, now I'm realizing it probably wouldn't matter because right. people were telling Bush 9-11 was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, speaking of 9-11, coincidentally, um, they did make a Peggy Sue Got Married musical 
that opened on the West End in 2001, and it was, like, receiving good reviews and doing well, but then 9-11 happened, and tourism to London dropped significantly, and they had to close. Oh. I bet some high school has done it. I... It's a great show for high schools to do. I mean, I... I don't know what the music is like, but I, I bet the music is like rockabilly, yeah, like 1950s I, inspired. I, I can see the whole thing. It's probably great. It's probably just like yeah. by the, it's probably similar to Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah, yeah probably. I was just gonna say Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right. The last thing I'll say because there's a lot of facts here uh, of diminishing interest. Um, <laughs> so while quote unquote visiting 1960, Peggy Sue warns her sister about eating red M and M's which I didn't know anything about, but apparently red M&Ms were discontinued in 1976 because it was found that red dye number two was named as a suspected carcinogen. Yes, I I picked that up because I remember that. I mean, personally remember red dye number two being a big deal. Did you eat red M&Ms before 1976? Sure, we ate all kinds of red (gasps) dye number two things. Wow. Wow. Well, we didn't know um, it was bad for you until they told us it was bad for you. Just like and you see fine, so. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know yeah. And in 1986, after the film was released, um, I don't, I don't think there is a causal connection there, but it was after the film was released. Red M and M's were reintroduced with a different red dye. Wait, so they didn't have oh. red M and M's between 1976 and 1986 for a whole ten years? Yeah. <gasps> How sad. What color was that. it replaced with? I don't know. Maybe they didn't replace it. They just took them out. Yeah. I mean, because there was always green M&M's, I think. Well, we, I don't know. We maybe need to talk to an M&M historian. Yeah. Which I guess <laughs> next Paul week on the pod. <laughs> I got my PhD in that. Someone yeah. did. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the actual content of the film. After a long, uh, a long road, we're finally getting to. Every day is a winding road. Magic, science, just a dream. So here's where we talk about kind of who gets the time travel of the how and why, the mechanics of the time traveling. Um, So obviously Peggy Sue's time traveling. She's the only one that we know of that has this particular time travel ailment. Um, And so the big question that I had sort of in the magic science, just a dream realm is did this happen? There is conflicting mm. evidence in the film for it having happened and not having happened. So she... Oh, that's interesting. She, I, I thought it was the, very clear that it was all a dream. Oh, I, I disagree. I See, it seems that Paige is in the middle. I am convinced it happened, and you, are, you say it didn't happen. So let's hear Strongly. Paige's arguments. So the biggest evidence that it was all hallucination and didn't actually happen is that... Peggy Sue sees a Mylar balloon uh, when she's walking down the hallway after giving blood. Yes. Um, the Mylar balloons were present at the 25th reunion, but Mylar balloons were not actually invented until the 70s. So there mm. wouldn't have been one Commented in on that 1960. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you and mom? Why, why is that evidence of it not happening? Because in 1960, the Mylar balloon wouldn't have been in existence. So she so wouldn't she's have actually going time back traveled. To the it would have just been nineteen sixty. I see. Yeah, but so, the the big evidence that it did happen is the book dedication from Michael Fitzsimmons at the end when he dedicates it to her and a starry night, which would imply that she did actually go back and ha- and you know spend that night with him because they that's, didn't know each other. That's before. what I said. That's yeah. that was my main argument for like this did happen. 
is that <laughs> that book was she they didn't even they didn't even know where Michael Fitzsimmons was in the he didn't original go to the reunion right he didn't yeah. go to the reunion and they were like no one can find him nobody knows where this guy went so that leads me to believe that like in the timeline where Peggy Sue hadn't gone back yet he went to Utah and like raised chickens with that polyamorous lady and just like never returned became a nomad became a nomad of some kind but then in the peggy sue going back timeline i think i think this is one of the this is a timeline split in my Mm -hmm. opinion um my professional opinion Mm -hmm. and uh in this timeline he like did get inspiration from that and like decided not to go to Utah and live a weird life and he or, became an author. Or he went to Utah but still like wrote and published this book and became sure. like well yes. known and, and stayed sort of where people could reach him. Yeah, definitely. But, but no one had actually heard from or of him at, at the reunion. In other words, if he were an author, a published author, people said, hey, you know, Michael Fitzsimmons, he wrote a book. Here's his book. Don't you think? Right, yeah. So that's what it I'm was saying. It a big is mystery at the, at the reunion. She changed his his future. by going. She actually went back and changed the course of his life. Is Michael Fitzsimmons the only person whose life was changed by her going well, back? Well, hold on. Uh, hold on. The, the, the one, the key to me, is the Barry Miller character, the nerd guy. Uh, what was mm-hmm. the character's name? I mean, Richard. Richard, okay, so Peggy Sue has this big conversation with him in the lab and tells him all the things about the future and everything, and he gets very excited, and you sense that from that moment, he's gonna, he knows about all these things, and he's not such a creative genius. He, Peggy Sue basically told him, go invent these things because people are gonna want these things. And so mm-hmm. all of his future success as the big wheel at the reunion is a result of her and he never really quite acknowledges her, you know, saying thanks for telling me about, you know, X or Y, and I invented those things, and now I'm a big success because of you. He doesn't. But we seem never to got. But we never got a scene with him in the second timeline when she gets back. Right. So this I would, would say this that would like put a third theory forward that she had always gone back. Yeah, that's the right, right, right. Yeah. Whereas that I think that it's two separate back? timelines. I'm not. I'm. I'm lost in time here. What? <laughs> okay. So the first theory is that it was a dream. The second theory is that she goes back, and then when she comes back to the future, it's a different future. Like none she of the. She changed it. She has changed it, and everyone has lived a slightly different version of their lives because of the event of her going back. The third theory is she has always gone back. So the version of them that was at the reunion was the version that was affected by her. But I don't think that makes sense because of the Michael Fitzsimmons piece. I mean, to be fair, Michael Fitzsimmons, I guess, could have not been reached by the reunion people and then saw, like, on TV that she fainted and sent her a book. Why would he see on TV that she fainted? I don't know. Woman faints at high school reunion. (laughs) Dad, is that going in the paper? No, that is not. I, I guess I agree with Helena that it doesn't really make sense that they wouldn't have been able to reach Michael Fitzsimmons in the, before she went back and then after she went back, he had been there, seen her faint, and sent her a book that was dedicated to her. I Okay, and the piece here that is, like, bugging me is the Mylar Balloon thing, but mm-hmm. I would explain that by saying, like, that is that part of it could be, like, part hallucination or, like, uh, aftershocks of time travel. 
Yeah, her coming. Mm. Yes, her like still coming out of it, being a little out of it. it it's yeah. A very, it, it's a very subtle clue. We, we both saw that and we both said, well, they didn't have those kind of balloons back in that day. Definitely I, significant, I think. I think I think maybe they they do purposefully give us that and they also purposefully give us the Michael Fitzsimmons thing. They know I I'm hoping, I'm believing in the writers and the the director that they knew what they were give, doing by giving us both options and it wasn't just a mistake. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think that it's I I do like a movie that gives you kind of like a we don't know. Gives oh, you something to I debate don't. about. I would like. I would like to know what the <laughs> the ending of Inception meant. I don't. I also am about to get to the series finale of The Sopranos, and I already know it's going to make me mad. <laughs> the other. The other weirdness there is why does she confess everything to the Richard guy and to no one else? She didn't really even have much of a relationship with the Richard guy. Um, she could have told her mother, you know, hey mom, I'm back from the future and I know what's going to happen. She could have told her dad, hey dad, you know, buy GM stock, it's going to make you rich or uh, or whatever. You know, the, the, the point being is the one person she confides in is this nerdy guy. I think she thought he was the smartest and might have the best clues on time travel and how it worked and how maybe she could figure it out. Yeah, yeah he, and also he, he would be the... Rap. And he'd be the most likely to believe her because everyone else would be like, oh, you're crazy. But he might be like, oh, no, this, like, this makes because sense of physics, this makes sense. Physics yeah. sense. Yeah. Also, maybe because, like, he didn't have any other friends at the school. So she's like, he's not going to tell anybody or, like, make fun of me or ostracize me because he doesn't have the power to do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I also feel like um, it, it's funny to me. It really drove home the point to me that, like, she was not the right age to be in this movie when she was having those scenes with him. Because, like, I just feel like the smartest kid, the smartest 18-year-old at your high school, once you're 43, you know that that's not, like, the smartest person. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, he's very smart for being 18, but, like, he's not the smartest person you could find. Right. Yeah, there's I no would love... teacher. There's no adult. There's yeah, no... that's true. She couldn't, like, go to the local college and, like, talk to a physics professor. Go to right. Doc Brown, I'm sure you Yeah, could. there you go. Um, yeah, I, uh, Paul, this won't mean anything to you, but I will tell Helena that that's, like, Michael Jalkio was our salutatorian. Shout out to Michael Jalkio. And what, like, like he and the valedictorian are basically tied. It was like I mean, thing. yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, Michael Jalkio was the smartest person, allegedly, factually, <laughs> the smartest person at my high school. And no offense, Mike, I know you're listening. I don't think you're the smartest person that I've ever met now. <laughs> mm. Wow. I don't that's know. Harsh. We might have just lost a listener page. <laughs> <Yeah>. Jesus. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, love him I, I think that it was very funny that she was like, yes, this is the smartest person that exists. Yeah, to be fair, he does turn out to be like a very smart person in the world. For sure, but he wasn't but he that also, smart. Right, and he also wasn't as smart at, 40, at 18 as he would be at 43. Exactly. He was an 18-year-old, but I did love their relationship. I wanted, you know, you also, we wanted more from them. When he proposed to her, I was like, great, yes, marry That's him. That's the movie. That should be what the movie is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so the biggest mechanism question, obviously, that we have is, was it a dream or was it the magic of reunions? I don't know. Yeah, what, <laughs> what exactly caused it? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, it's really un unclear what 
caused her to pass out? Was she stressed out? Or I don't. Know. I think when she's coming to in the hospital, someone is saying something about a heart murmur. Okay. Would, would or a regular heart murmur make you pass something? out? Maybe I guess that could possibly. Uh, would it make the, you the reason I, I say go into it, a coma of sorts? <laughs> like it's not like she just passed out for a minute. Like she's out for days. It seems by the time because people have time to send things to her hotel room. Yeah. The reason it seemed obviously to be a dream to me was the staging of the hospital scene, which was very, very much like uh, the Wizard of Oz when totally. Dorothy wakes mm-hmm. up. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, we, you we were commented there, out loud. You were there, and you were that, there. That that was, right. That's exactly it. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought of immediately. Yeah. Um, my, my next thing is going to segue us. So let's segue ourselves into what have you done? So here you talk about like time travel inconsistencies, ethics, etc. And so my question is, is this an inconsist? Is this an inconsistency or is this indication that it's a dream that she's wearing this silver party dress to school with no sweater? Like she's not dressed like anybody else. Yeah, they did. They did get nominated for an Oscar for costuming, but this costuming choice was bad. Yeah, they like they they could have at least given her a sweater. She would look crazy at school in that outfit. Any comment? Yeah, yeah. I, I like that dress. That was she looked good in it, and uh, it was. It's not something. No, yes, no one is denying that, that she looked great. Yeah, she and looked great. We but loved her. Here's school. the thing: we loved the dress when she put it on for the reunion, but it was not school appropriate. We've already talked about a lot of, of, of my consistency issues, mo- mainly the age thing, and also is Nicolas Cage, what is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was an inconsistency for me, just in that, like, why would anyone love this person? Yeah. Our, <laughs> he seems crazy. Our favorite moment, well, I guess I won't speak for you, a moment we both seem to very much enjoy was when he's sneaking into her room, or he's, like, trying to be knocking on her window, and he had his fingers... He's doing like sneaky fingers. He's making very big finger acting choices. <laughs> we loved it. We we screamed. Jazz hands. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. 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 Um, also, I ha- I took issue with when Richard tried to push her in front of a, a a a truck because I was like, if she was a ghost and you thought the truck would pass through her, wouldn't you just pass through her if you put your hand on her? Yeah, that was weird. That like, <laughs> and not kill her. And what's the and what's the alternative? Oh, I killed her. Yeah, yeah. Then, then you're stuck with that your stuck whole with life. That. Yeah, that's I bad. Guess she really wasn't telling the truth. <laughs> very like Salem witch trials. Right. Very much like if she sinks, she was no witch this whole time. Do you know what was um, also weird is the scene where they he goes to their to the house and they go down in the basement to have a conversation. And yeah. How weird, weirdly spookily lit that was. Yes. So. You can see the breath coming out of their mouths, meaning it was really, really cold down there. Right. What's up with that? Weird. And also, I I noted that it would be... So I, I was just putting myself in, in her shoes, right? And I was like, if I want to talk to my boyfriend in secret in my house in the middle of the night, it seems to me that it would be less conspicuous to just talk to him at the window in my bedroom or like have him yeah. climb into the window than to go through the house, <laughs> down several flights of stairs to the basement. Yeah. See, 
I thought that scene, to me, that scene was like, oh, this is the Francis Ford Coppola scene. Like, yeah. he, he was like, I need to have, like, a Godfather scene. And that's where I was like, this is totally weird. Like, why? Yes. I don't know. It was, that that to me was like, this is why this was the wrong director it, for this it piece. It definitely was weird. And it had a, a, an undercurrent of violence could happen. Just that, right. Definitely. Know, he was going to get mad and in the in this you know, twilight lit scene, something very, very violent was going to happen. Right. Uh, tonally is, is the right word. It didn't quite Yeah. Fit. Yeah. Also, I mean, while we're talking about tone inconsistencies, can we now talk about the Masons? Oh, please. I would love to talk about the Masons. <laughs> we The movie takes, when she goes to visit her grandparents and the, the scene of her looking through the window with her grandparents in the background, Again, it the tone all of a sudden we're in a different movie. It's very yeah. scary. It's very eerie. And then her grandfather is like, let me bring you to the Freemasons to do a weird ritual. I loved it. That was yeah. my favorite part of the movie because it was so insane. And um, yeah. And the I... whole time we're like, what do they think is going to happen, right? Like if they do this correctly, is she going to disappear and like wherever 18 year old Peggy Sue would have been, she would be there instead. Or like, how would they know if she disappeared? Cause there is an 18 year old Peggy Sue that needs to be existing in the world. But right. then she did disappear right. and they were like, okay, yeah. we did it. And, and then they were and, like, let's play cards. It was hilarious. And there, you know, if, if they sent her back to the future and she was no longer in 1960, wouldn't her parents be devastated by that? Why would grandpa want to facilitate that? Right, well, Peggy Sue, you're staying around here. You, we, well, I don't care if you think you're 42 years old. Mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, really maybe we want should to. deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Send her to psychiatrist. But her grandmother was like a psychic. Grandmother was was into it. The yeah. grandparents were like, "Yes, you did travel from the future. This all makes sense. Thank you yeah. for naming your child after me." We are wise old people. We know yeah. how this works. And also, like, I loved when her grandmother was like when she's like, I'm sorry to tell you that you die someday. And her grandmother was like, it's okay. I know exactly when I'm going to die, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> so so spooky. The grandparents were the best. Um, Peggy Sue could have told her, no, grandma, it's 1965. You're, you're going to die then. We know how this works yeah. out. Yeah. Well, that's what I would have liked for her to like write it in a note and give it to Peggy Sue. That way Peggy Sue could look at it and be like, oh, she was right. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say I, though, uh, uh, her relationship with her parents um, why didn't she feel comfortable telling them that she wasn't their 18 year old daughter that she was now their 42 year old daughter because Helena if you told me that <laughs> I would believe it <laughs> really you wouldn't commit me no if you could tell me stuff about the future I'd say hey wait a second she's really onto something here Okay, but what if a year ago, or let's say a year and a half ago, Helena comes to you and says, I'm, I'm from the future, and in about six months, <laughs> no one is going to be allowed to leave their house for a full year because would, a bat. I, I would give in, enormous points for creativity. She, I might think she's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I might think she's nuts. But, like, tell me some more about this. This is fascinating. And you've obviously or, worked out these details. It's pretty or, impressive. 10 years ago, Helena comes to you and says, Hey, Dad, I'm from the future. Guess who's president in 2016? Oh, no. Amazing. That would be amazing. <laughs> of, of course your reaction would be, No way. Get out of here. That can't be. But then 
if you break it down and you say, well, this happened and that happened and people went a little nuts and, you know, that then it starts to be logical. And then you've gone from being a crazy person to, oh, my God, you have superpowers. You can see the, the problem future. is the time between you thinking that I'm a crazy person and you realizing that I'm right. What do you do in that time? And I'm guessing it involves me not being allowed to leave your house <laughs> but, but for a little you while. Know, you know I would be down for a great story. And yeah, you're you going to tell me these fantastic things that are coming, that are going to happen in the next few years, which are kind of amazing, but actually kind of plausible if you give me the lead up to them. I'd say, man, what a daughter I have. I mean, I say that anyway, but oh. now you can see the future. Wow. And by the way, while you're at it, could you give me a couple of stock tips? Because you know. <laughs> No problem. But here's the thing. I, if I went back 10 years ago, like I don't know if I could give people stock tips because I don't pay attention sure to the stock market. Sure you could. Market. No, no. You don't have to pay attention to the stock market to know that like TikTok is big. Oh, true. That's true. Yeah. Like, so like you pick like something that you deal. know is going to become a huge yeah. deal sure. and Zoom. they don't know about yet. Yeah. Invest in Zoom. <laughs> Even um, Starbucks, you know, I mean, stuff you do yeah. every day. Yeah, that's true. All right. Which I think brings us to Does their love stand the test of time? So this is all about their romance. Um, and I think, Paul, as Wow, I was about to say as neither Helena nor I have ever been married, but that's not that's true. not true. Uh, but as you know, as Helena and I have never been been married for twenty five you know, years. years to somebody, mm-hmm. um, you know, you probably can uh, bring some insight into this. You know, she says their marriage fell apart because they got married too young and started blaming each other for all they missed. Um, I thought that was an interesting way, uh, interesting and evolved way for her to frame it. Um, and not just be like, our marriage fell apart because he cheated on me. <laughs> what I, was your take? Well, I, here, here are my observations about that. Uh, I, I, it wasn't really clear exactly why their marriage fell apart and why he was cheating on her. I mean, stuff happens in any relationship. I understand that. But that was unclear. And she went back... I guess trying to figure that out, but you really don't figure out the present by looking at the time you were 18 years old. Uh, it's just because people grow up and they evolve and relationships evolve and that just doesn't seem like a, a real plausible inquiry to me. In fact, I got the sense that she was the one who was bored with the relationship. You know, she goes back and says, I don't really want to get involved with him again. I know how it's going to turn out. I'd like to play the field and try things out, try, you know, meeting other people. And it it seemed like she wasn't really committed to the relationship in the future, which makes the whole resolution completely phony to me. Why is it that she suddenly discovered, oh, I really love him and we have a great relationship. And what makes him decide, yeah, I'm not going to cheat on you anymore and let's have a great relationship again. I thought that was just some sort of weird Yeah, that's the thing is, yeah, he doesn't have to go back in time. He, I guess, he guess he evaluates himself in the present and her medical emergency and is like, I love you now. I love you. I've always loved you. I, I worry about the future of that relationship, though, because right. I don't think that 
maybe maybe her going back was some form of therapy, some form of like self reflection. But he didn't get that. Right. So like now she just has to deal with this like untherapized well, man. I what did she discover about him? Um, not I mean? much. Well, yeah. I think I think the 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 thing that she, the movie seems to want us to think she discovered is a that he. Uh, did things she didn't know about in high school, like saying at this club, um, which to me would not be enough to re-fall in love with a person, but whatever. Um, and B, that her, this other option that she fantasized about was not actually an option, was not actually something that she would have enjoyed. Um, so I think that big what if is squandered for her, which I guess helps. Well, it, apparently the locket had something to do with changing her mind because that's the big reveal moment. Yeah. When she looks at the locket- it's kids? And yeah, it's her kids. She misses her kids. She misses her kids, but does that say anything about missing him? And he obviously did give her that locket, and that's a nice sentimental thing. But really, it seems to me that what she is revealing in that moment is, well, I loved him when I, he was 18 years old, and I was 18 years old. And he, boy, what a great relationship we had then. It doesn't say anything about the future. How do you feel about him now, honey? And, you know, it, the answer is... He's cheated on me and he's, you know, been kind of a jerk and maybe I don't feel the same way. So I, I didn't think that that discovery was particularly revealing. And by the way, she knew he gave that locket to her when she was 42 years old. So yeah. mm-hmm. what's the what's the reveal there? I, I agree. It yeah. felt like they were like wrapping up the movie really fast. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to get trying to get you to walk out of the theater happy that relationships can be restored and renewed and everybody can live happily ever after but it was very unearned in that moment i will say up until the hospital seat like i think they could have done all of that i think the message of i really did love this man when i was 18 i wouldn't change anything about how my life ended up because i have these beautiful children like all of that can be true and she could still wake up and be like great I chose to have my life turn out exactly as it did. I didn't miss mm-hmm. out on anything, but I don't want to be with this man anymore. <laughs> right, because sure. the person he's turned into is not someone I like. Right. She, and, yeah, she doesn't seem and, to like what he does for work. And what changes his mind? Why does he suddenly yeah. feel, you know, the, his relationship with her is restored? She I hasn't think, done anything to help him She just fainted, him. yeah. Yeah, she fancies. I feel like, yeah, is she going to have to have a near-death experience, like, every couple weeks for him to stay interested in her? <laughs> like, that's that's what it feels like. He's like, I couldn't imagine living without you because I thought you were going to die. But she's not dead. She's yeah. alive. Right. And, and you know, he could continue with his, relation, his other new relationship and still care about her, you know, mm-hmm. living. I mean, I don't, I don't want <laughs> right. you to die. I don't really right. want to be with you, but I don't want you to die. It's, it's you can not get divorced and not wish death on the other yeah, person. Exactly. I do think that's a trope we see a lot in movies, TV shows, etc., where it's like, yeah, when that near-death experience happens and someone's like, it made me realize I can't live without you or like, I want to be with you or I want to marry you, whatever. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of people I don't want to marry who I do not wish are dead. Exactly. <laughs> Which exactly. we just saw that, I will point out, in, on The Bachelor. On the Bachelor. Did uh, someone die? No. no, someone had a had a, a skydiving accident where for a second it looked like she, might, she be. might be dead, but she was fine. But it made The Bachelor like choose her. Yeah. Spoilies well, on this season of The Bachelor. Yeah. Well, I mean that that is the uh, trope uh, of movies: is dying or death changes everything about 
your understanding and relationship with that person. And my experience in real life uh, is it doesn't change. I mean, you miss them and you care about them and you have grief and everything, but eh, you know what? I still understand you the way I understood you before you died. You know, you, you were a certain kind of person and with all the flaws of human beings. Um, I don't love you necessarily more because you were about to die or you died. Yeah. Right. I think right. they I wish you the... didn't die, but nevertheless. It is interesting that it was written by a husband and wife. Hmm. I, I yeah, I don't know what, yeah, I don't know what to take from that because yeah, I agree it's yeah, they seem to miss the, yes, the movie seemed to come to the conclusion that if she didn't want to change her life and still wanted to have her kids, then she that also meant that she that just because she fell maybe she fell back in love with the 18-year-old Nicolas Cage. But, like, yeah, I don't know why that meant that she had to be with the 40-something-year-old Nicolas Cage. I don't get it. Maybe and Michael Fitzsimmons is in a better place now and doesn't want her to move to Utah. Maybe she should be with him. He clearly uh, is doing well for himself in this version of the timeline. Yeah. He wrote a book, and he clearly thinks about her because he dedicated it to her. She yeah. should go be with Michael Fitzsimmons. That's yeah. what I'm taking from Even this. though Michael Fitzsimmons in high school sucked. also sucked. That guy sucked. I was going to say, in terms of the, the writing of the movie, the Michael Fitzsimmons guy has one of the great lines in the movie where he gets all self-righteous about his parents and how he's uh, going to break free and he's going to be his own guy. And he says, no more jello for me, mom. <laughs> <laughs> wow, very funny. that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that one. <laughs> Um, yeah. Next time you want to rebel uh, from from our family, use that I, line. No, watch for it. Jill. Watch this space. Uh, the, the other great line I wanted to say was the scene uh, in the house when uh, Peggy Sue is talking about uh, Peggy Sue's mother asks her about the issues she's having with her boyfriend, and she's and whether he's pressuring her to have sex or something. And she says to him quite earnestly, Peggy, you know what a penis is. Stay away from it. <laughs> yeah, I have that line written down, too, as a as a real winner. <laughs> um, that was not how I got the sex talk, but. <laughs> also, coincidentally, not me. <laughs> we were talking about, um, did you see Lady Bird, Paul? No, I didn't see that. The Greta Gerwig pick? Well, so there's a character in it. Uh, who is uh, also like a love interest who just is very similar like brooding it just it's such yeah. a it's a trope that hasn't changed um, in like 50 years or whatever it is 40 years the, the brooding guy who reads a lot and mm -hmm. like doesn't isn't doesn't think it's cool to like things <laughs> One thing that I did like about the way they portrayed that guy was like, I was like, oh, that guy. Yeah. I remember that guy. Like, I dated that guy. Yeah, for sure. And I get why Peggy Sue at 18 dated that guy. But if I'm Peggy Sue going back in a 42, and I my mind is 42 years old, the second that that stuff starts coming out of his mouth, I'm like, oh, uh, God, yeah. no. Even not only at 43, at like 27, like, we, we were just talking about how, like, that guy seems like the epitome of cool in high school. But, like, as soon as you right. leave high school, or at least by the time you graduate college, you know that that guy sucks. Yeah. And <laughs> you don't want to be with that guy. <laughs> right. Not even for, like, two minutes no. do you want to be with that guy. 
people did get married very young in those days. And it was not unusual to marry right out of high school or to marry by the time you're, I don't know, 20 years old. So, you know, high school sweethearts was not an unusual marriage match. And in fact, as you see at the reunion, uh, all the other characters are married to their high school sweethearts. So, um, you know, life was pretty restricted in a way. You, you really didn't leave your town. You really didn't move away. And women, let's face it, had very few options. Yeah. So marrying your high school sweetheart, particularly if you weren't going to college, and most people weren't, was kind of what your best hope was. And um, so that I think that was actually a pretty accurate portrayal of the circumstances for a woman of that age. I thought it was, I mean, and I guess, again, I don't know. Uh, again, you probably could speak better to this. Um, I thought the the sort of casual treatment of her divorce and her friends' divorces, that felt modern to me in a way that I was surprised by for the 80s. Oh, by the mid-80s, I don't think that was a big, that was pretty normal, if that's the right word. Um, in the early 60s, it would have been quite unusual. Um, mm -hmm. Here is one personal story. Um, when I uh, moved as a kid at 10 years old from New York to Los Angeles, I was shocked by something that had not happened among my classmates in Brooklyn that was common among my classmates in the sixth grade in Los Angeles, which was there were a lot of kids from divorced families whose parents had divorced. And this was extremely unusual. And I, like, I thought, oh, how terribly, terribly sad that there are so many kids from divorced, with divorced parents. And of course, through the 70s and through certainly the 80s, this became far more common all across the country. And, you know, the old stat about half of all marriages blowing up, I guess by the mid 80s was not um, you know, so far-fetched. And so I think over that period of time, uh, there was kind of this cultural revolution, this cultural change, big transformation in marriage in America. Well, this seems like a really good transition for us into Thank our you. next section, which is, ladies, did we just time travel back to the 1950s? Um, or in this case, either the 60s or the 80s, depending on you, wherever you want. Uh, we did definitely try and travel back to the 1960s, uh, briefly. briefly. Not only, you know, she's divorced, but she has her own business, she mentions, which is good for her. She kind of seems like she's doing okay. Like, I get that the recent divorce is, like, traumatic, but yeah, to your point, Dad, like, it seems like people are not that, like, stressed about her divorce. She's the only one who's sort of freaking out about it. Everyone's like, yeah, divorce is fine. It's the 80s. Mm. Um, her, and... friend, her friend says one of another, another great line that says, you just have to think of men like houses and trade upwards. <laughs> yes. So she seems to be the only one who's like, oh, my God, I have failed because I am divorced. Yeah. But it but, might be more because she's it's a recent thing that's happened to her. Yeah, and, and why wouldn't you feel uh, miserable about that? You've had a relationship for 20-plus years, um, 25 years. You've got two kids. The father kids of your children, yeah. Yeah, and, and this is all cracking up. This is totally unforeseen and you know completely traumatic emotionally for someone. So I, I 
think that's utterly realistic. They obviously have a long history. There's, there must have been something keeping them together for 25 years and two now adult or more or less adult mm-hmm. children. Um, I, I find it actually sad that you know their relationship broke up. Um, so what can you do to repair that and bring it back? It, you know, marriages that have stress in them and, and get repaired are, I think that's a great triumph of, you know, the, of therapy or of people accommodating each other or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. it doesn't have to break up I'm, I'm, yeah. and nor should we, you know, think it's a good idea that it did. Except that Nicolas Cage made crazy choices. (laughs) And cheated on her. And cheated on her, ultimately. I thought, yeah, I thought overall the movie, like, didn't offend my feminist sensibilities much. I I think it was very Mm female-focused. She had a lot of friends that she talked to about things that weren't men. Yeah. Can we talk about the segregated club now? I think we should, yeah. (laughs) Oh, up until that club scene, I thought uh, their town was the whitest town in America because there was not a single black kid at that high school yep. uh, or anywhere in sight any in, in the town. And then they dropped uh, the club on us, and I go, oh, okay, you've got some people non-white in your, in your vicinity. And, um, you know, in and, and that sense, it kind of made sense to me because segregation was a big deal. And, yeah, maybe that high school never integrated, and it, it, like a lot of high schools up till 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of a realistic portrayal, I guess, um, how white everybody was. Uh, but the club showed me, um, you know, it's it's not just, um, just that, that they recognized there are black people in the world. Yeah, my issue with it was more like, if there's segregation happening, which was what felt like it was, the club felt like a yeah, black club. Yeah, was saying, club. like, this is a segregated place. Right. Yeah. An R&B club, but what they coded it as. Mm-hmm. Um, my my question, so, but the, the white people feel comfortable just, like, going into that space? I mean, I think that that's a pretty common... I don't know. It, like, it works that way, just not the other it, way around. Yeah, I actually yeah. do think, like, if you look at, like... Um, white people going to like the cotton club in harlem and stuff like that like that was yeah although cotton club in harlem that's a much more cosmopolitan and sophisticated thing than some small town um that scene reminded me in a weird way of the scene in animal house when the the frat boys go to hear otis day and the knights perform at the club and it's a kind of menacing environment because the white people kind of invading the turf of the black people. They did. They were not welcomed into that club. And it, the, the racial dynamic was very, very apparent. In Peggy Sue Gets Married, they go into this club and it's, oh, sure, white people come in. We, you know, and it seemed like a cooler environment. Um, I don't know which is the realistic portrayal. Um, and maybe neither one is, and maybe it's, it's much more complicated than that. You know, it, it, it maybe is grafting on our desire for integration and an integrated environment in a way that didn't really exist in 1960. Yeah, I think that that de- could definitely be where they were going with that. And, um, you know, I thought that it was uh, it would be nicer. It would be nice to have some black characters with names who speak 
and have a, an important part in the plot, but especially just in that scene, right? Yeah, like, they, could, so they had that, that scene, scene there, yeah. and they didn't use it. So, in terms of like the way that the movie was uh, intersectionally, I would say that it was it didn't it didn't achieve it, right? But, but you know, nothing we're surprised at for for the 1980s. So, our last section is. <laughs> Is, is it the best of times or the worst of times? So here's where we talk about if you should watch this movie. If so, in what context? We rate it on our doomsday clock, which is from noon to midnight. Noon being like, oh my god, I'd rather jump out the window than watch this movie. And midnight being like, I would watch this movie every day, all day, for years. Um, so I guess we should start with our guest. Paul, if you want to give us your closing thoughts on the film and rate it on our doomsday clock. Yes, I would uh, put it at about uh, 6 p.m. I'm not sure exactly. That basically to say, say about half, or maybe above yeah. average. So maybe 7 to 8 o'clock, somewhere around there. Because it's above average and it doesn't pay off right. And uh, it's enjoyable in most uh most of the way but it's a big big letdown at the end mm-hmm. yeah I, i'm gonna have to go with a with a solid seven thirty. i agree with that i it's not a bad movie would i watch it again probably not yeah mm-hmm. i would say i i think uh kathleen turner does a great job there's some lovely performances and nicholas cage does something which i don't know if it, it, it like detracts from the movie as an art piece but Maybe if you want to see Nicolas Cage do weird things for a couple hours, like, <laughs> this might be your jam. Um, Some also, people do love that. Also, again, I will reiterate, uh, early Jim Carrey uh, plays one of, of Nicolas Cage's friends in the 60s. His name is Richard Getz in the film. And he said, whatever Richard wants, Richard gets." Which so I found very I think funny. What we can conclude from all of this is that there are a lot of real great one-liners in this movie. We true. Have yes. All mentioned lines that we were like, "That's a great line." Yeah, I, the, great the one-liners. Proof, the proof for me is I saw this movie when it came out in the late '80s, '86, '87. Did I go back to watch it? No. Uh, it took me thirty mm-hmm. odd years to go back and watch it. So not a big yeah. demand from me to see it again. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Again, yeah, if you're interested in seeing Nicolas Cage make some weird choices or Jim Carrey do some early work, um, watch it. If not, I would say there are better time travel movie romances out there. Like I said, it doesn't really pay off. A lot of turmoil behind the scenes. We don't love to encourage 20-hour days. So I'm going to go I'm gonna go 6.30. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Yep. Uh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds and if you're Nicolas right Cage, And if you're a big Nicolas Cage fan... 10 p.m. <laughs> 11 p.m. Yeah, yeah. Because that so. really is Nicolas Cage turning it up to 11, yeah. as they say. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, great My work, pleasure. everyone. I enjoyed read, it. Some, read some Paul Fawry literature. Yeah, there's Can there's I come lots back sometime and talk about another movie? Oh my yeah, god, of yeah, course. of course. Oh, yes. I would love that. Name, name the play, name the movie. And maybe, well, maybe one day we'll all be together in person again. That would be great. Especially congrats Amazing. on your vaccination. Yeah, woohoo! Uh, yes, I'm totally jazzed about that. I'm ready to resume real life and see real people again, not on some damn Zoom thing. Well, luckily we didn't make you look at us on Zoom throughout any of this. So um, with that, we will all go to our dinners and we will just say to our listeners, we'll be back in no time at all.
please, can, no. Can you guys hold on one second? We have a little mm-hmm. issue. Um, can, yeah. Oh, hold on one second. No worries. Let me ask them. How do you cancel a DoorDash order that's been placed? Ah, hold on. My earphone fell out. Hold on, hold on. Okay, I'm back.